I'd ask you to open your Bibles with me this morning. We're going to be in the third chapter of the book of Mark. As we continue in our sermon series that is actually started, it started last December. And it's a sermon series that we're looking chronologically at the life of Jesus as we're looking at the Gospels and we're looking step by step throughout his ministry, day by day. We're looking blessing by blessing, miracle by miracle from his birth as we look at around Christmas time. And we're, we're walking through his ministry. And this morning we're going to come to a very important mile marker in the ministry of Jesus Christ. We come to a point now in our messages where we've studied over the last eight months and we've seen everything that Jesus has done so far, for the most part, he has done on his own. He has worked through his ministry at this point by himself, and we're to a point now that he's not alone anymore. We're at a point in his ministry that is actually going to change everything that he does forever. Nothing will ever be the same now because everything that Jesus has been doing has been leading to this point, which is going to be leading to the next point in his ministry. But this is such an important point and time in his ministry where he brings others aboard. And I want you to read with me. Our lone scripture today is going to be up on the screen. We're in Mark chapter 3, verse number 13, as we're reading 13 through 19 this morning. Mark writes this. He says, Afterward, Jesus went up on the mountain and called out the ones he wanted to go with him. And they came to him. Then he appointed 12 of them, and he called them his apostles. And they were to accompany him, and he would send them out to preach, giving them the authority to cast out demons. These are the 12 he chose. Simon, whose name, who he named Peter, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, but Jesus nicknamed them sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who later, who later betrayed him. So from this point forward in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus does not travel alone anymore. He now starts a very long onboarding process for 12 men. It's as if Jesus was an employer. It's, it's as if he's been running ads online and he's looking to take men on. He's, he's taking resumes in to look over and, and he's looking at, at their religious knowledge. He's looking down resumes at people's preaching experience. And he found something very specific about these men, something very special about them. That when he looked at these 12 men, he didn't find any of that. He didn't find a vast amount of religious experience in their past. He didn't find preaching knowledge and experience in their past. The, the specialty of these 12 men is that they didn't come with amazing recommendations. These men didn't have seminary degrees. These men weren't Bible scholars. They weren't even amazing evangelists. The quality that Jesus found in these 12 men was a quality that they were all very trainable. It's not that they came from rich homes. It's not that they came from great schools. None of these men came with any preaching on the job experience. 
They didn't show up as religious leaders to become a disciple. I want you to, to, to realize just how important this job is that Jesus is bringing these men on to do. This leads to point number one in your notes this morning. If you're joining us for the first time, you'll find on the left-hand side of your bulletin some fill-in-the-blanks, and I'm going to give you those answers. They're going to be up here on the screen throughout the sermon, and there's pens in the back if you need one. But I want you to see how important it is, this job that Jesus is bringing these men on to do. Watch this. Mankind's eternal existence with God the Father depends on the strength and the training of us as disciples. I know we're... We're going to look today at the connection between the 12 disciples and between you and I. But when Jesus brought these men aboard, he absolutely knew how important this job was. Mankind's eternal existence with God the Father depends on the strength and the training of these 12 men. And it depends on the strength and the training of you and I. And we're going to see how that connects this morning. See, the mission of Jesus Christ is to be the atonement for the sins of all of mankind. We know that. As Christians, we know why Christ was here. But man has to believe and to accept that gift, right? That means that somebody needs to tell everyone that the gift of Jesus is offered. Right? That's the job of the 12 disciples. Somebody needs to tell people, and then people need to accept this gift. This morning as we wrap up our sermon series called What Jesus Says, we're actually we're going to see what it is that, and who it is that Jesus is going to send out, his first 12 disciples. Next week, we're going to start a brand new sermon series, still chronologically through the life of Christ, But we're going to look at the first lessons that Jesus starts to teach these 12 disciples. We're going to see that Jesus puts this major study in place almost immediately in what we commonly refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to start a brand new sermon series called Jesus Teaches About. And we're going to see exactly what it is that he starts to teach these 12 men and all the others that are beginning to follow him. But first... Before we get into the lessons of Christ, it's so drastically important for us to understand and realize who exactly it was that Jesus chose to follow him. It's so important that we know about these men. And this morning, I want you to realize, when we leave today, I want you to understand that that the disciples themselves were hand-picked by Jesus. And I want you to realize something else is that all of these men are different. All of these 12 men had different skill sets. These 12 men, they had different hobbies, different things that they enjoyed doing. They had different families. They, maybe they loved going to different restaurants. Maybe they had dislikes and, and likes that were so much different than each other. They had passions and, and arguments that were different. They weren't the same guys. Would it be fair to say, looking around this room, that we're all different? That, that, there's, that there's differences that we all like, and, 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 there, and there's things that, that we have passions about that maybe somebody sitting right next to us doesn't know anything about. They've got a different passion, but you know why Jesus chose these 12? is because they were all different, but they were all very trainable. 
And that was such an important quality to Jesus when it came to bringing these 12 men aboard. More than anything, I want you to realize that Jesus picked these 12 who are no different than you and I. They're not scholars. They're not great public speakers. They're not royalty or celebrities. They don't have 100,000 Instagram followers. They don't. They don't have influence among people. They're not widely known outside their, their own circle. But they're people, just like you and I, that Jesus has handpicked to do a very important job. By the time Jesus is done teaching these men, they're going to have something in common that they didn't have before. They're going to have a unified direction, but we're going to see that they have fallen so madly in love with Jesus that they have this deep desire and passion to go out and teach other people about his saving grace. These men are on mission for Christ, but first they need to be trained. First, they need to be taught. Jesus is going to, they're going to follow him for a couple of years as disciples, as an apprentice. A disciple is simply this. A disciple is somebody who learns from somebody else. It's like a student, right? It's like an apprentice. Somebody who learns with the full intention that they are going to go and do. If you think of somebody who's an apprentice, maybe in a, maybe in a kitchen, maybe somebody who works at a, at a, at a very high-end restaurant, they're an apprentice, they're learning from the chef with the full intention that someday they're going to be the chef of their own place, right? They're going to take what they're learning and they are going to go and perform those duties. That's exactly what the disciples are doing. They are learning. See, Jesus didn't teach these 12 men about the kingdom of God so that they could take the, that message and simply have a relationship one-on-one -on -one with Jesus at home, in their room, right? Just when they're in their car by themselves. No, he taught them so that they could go and teach others. That was the job. That's our job. It's to go and teach others. As we look at these 12 men, I want you to remember that Jesus handpicked these 12 men, and he absolutely handpicked you for the same exact job. To go tell others. That's the job. See, this is point number two in your notes. This is really important to write down. That's the job. Come and learn from Jesus and then go tell other people. That's it, in a nutshell. Come and learn from Jesus and then go and tell other people. As disciples of Christ, that's our job too, right? As we start to look at the 12 disciples this morning, what I'd like you to do is to see some of the qualities and characteristics of these men. I'm going to bet that you're going to come across somebody this morning that you're going to say, I can relate to him. I can relate. There's something in my life that's very similar to his. Jesus picked him. Yeah, he did. Jesus picked him. Would it be fair to say that sometimes we sit back and say, Jesus picked me? Yeah, Jesus picked you, right? He picked all of us. That's why we're here this morning. It's because he has a job for all of us. We're going to start going through this list that, that Mark sh shows us 
And we're going to start out with a gentleman by the name of Peter. Peter was born Simon. Jesus gave him the name Peter. And he is one of the most popular disciples that we see throughout the Gospels and even into the rest of the New Testament. We've seen him numerous times in the in the biblical account of the new church as the church is forming. As a matter of fact, Peter would become a leader in the church after Jesus has ascended back into heaven. Peter, his father, his father's name is John, and Peter's brother's name is Andrew, who is also a disciple of Jesus. Peter grew up in a small town called Bethsaida, and and it's a fishing village on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Peter, he was a guy who managed a fishing business. James and John, who we're going to hear from a little bit later, they're the sons of Zebedee, they're kind of partners. They all work together. They're fishermen. That's what they do. We did learn that Peter is apparently married at one point, and, and at one point lived in the city of Capernaum. Peter had a way of acting first and thinking later. We see that all throughout the biblical account, that Peter sometimes does things without thinking about it. He just acts first. Is there anyone in here that has got caught acting first and thinking later? Okay, I see some hands up already. I do see. So, so some of us, I think, can actually relate to Peter. But see, here's the one thing that we realize, though, through the actions of Peter, through the biblical account, he might act first and think later, but all of his actions are out of a pure devotion to Jesus. But sometimes, like when he attacks a Roman guard on behalf of our Lord acts first, thinks later. Sometimes we see, hey, there could be consequences. Somebody can get hurt, but he's doing it out of pure devotion to Jesus. It was at one point when when Jesus did change his name and he says, your name is now Peter, which means the rock. We can find through the account of Peter that sometimes Peter had a hard time living up to that name as being the rock. He would struggle with it sometimes. There was a time in in the ministry of Jesus when... Jesus had asked these men to stay up and pray. Stay up and pray with me. And Peter fell asleep overnight. That's what happened. There was a time when Peter actually denied Jesus as Jesus is about to go to trial. This is Peter acting first, thinking later. We already talked about the time when he attacked the Roman guard. But through all of this, through all of the weaknesses of of Peter, Jesus was deeply devoted to Peter, and he had such deep confidence in Peter, knowing that he's going to be a leader in the church someday, knowing that even with Peter's flaws, this is still the man I want. I think Jesus would probably say the same thing about you and I, right? That even with our flaws, even with the the issues that are in our life, that we are still the people who Christ wants. He still has something in mind for us. Peter probably would not be the kind of man that you and I would have hired to lead an entire movement, to lead generations of people towards their salvation. If we would have known Peter, if we would have seen this guy who's kind of crazy, but Jesus saw something in this man that was so undeniably 
perfect for the job that Jesus not only wanted him and hired him and took him with his faults, Jesus continued to train him through his ministry towards leadership. Peter had a plan. Peter had a job to do that not only depended on Peter being trained throughout the ministry of Jesus, but Peter goes on to lead an entire movement with a couple of the other disciples after the ascension of Christ into heaven. Peter is a central character. And Jesus knew this. And Jesus continued to train Peter even though he came with flaws. The next disciple that we see in the list from Mark is a gentleman by the name of James, who is a brother to a gentleman we'll see in a minute by the name of John. James and John are both the sons of a man named Zebedee, and together John, uh, Jesus had given them the nickname the Sons of Thunder. James is one of the men who would be part of this inner circle of Jesus. He's as, as he and his brother, uh, Peter, are, they're in, he, him and his brother and Peter are invited on three different occasions to go privately with Jesus. There was a time when, when Jesus healed the daughter of, of Jairus and, and James and John and Peter are there and, and the three of them witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus. And, and when Jesus was suffering his, his agony in the garden of Gethsemane, James was there also. James was the first disciple that we read of in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, actually, to be put to death for his faith. It's in Acts chapter 12, we're told that, that Herod had James killed with the sword. It's about 10 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. And really what it is, it was James is put to death because Herod is trying to squash this movement. Be fair to say that taking one guy out of the movement of spreading the gospel didn't do much to squash spreading the gospel, right? See, that's why Jesus trained many people so that they could go out. That's why Jesus continues to train many people so that we could go out. There's a lesson that we learned from James. We learned that James was passionate. He was so passionate about his family. James was, was passionate about his family business. He was passionate about Christ so much that he became the example of what would happen to the apostles throughout their life. He was the first one to be martyred, but he certainly wasn't the last one. He died for his faith in Jesus. And most of the other apostles would end up giving their life for for the idea and for the work of furthering the kingdom. James was the first, but he did it with passion. His brother John, that we know as the Apostle John, him and his brother, James and John, they grew up in this family that had access to finance. If, if you owned a boat, if you were a fisherman, if you had a small business, you probably had a little bit more money than others in the area. James and John, they became disciples of Jesus immediately after the baptism of Jesus. We had seen when Jesus went to be baptized by John the Baptist that James and John were there and a couple of other disciples that would follow 
Jesus almost immediately. And they had such deep interest, James and John, in their ministry with Jesus that their, their family even became involved. There was a moment when their, when their mother was so involved in, and, and, and knew Jesus and knew Him as the Messiah so much and she appreciated her sons being part of the ministry that their mother even asked Jesus, hey, when, um, when you're in heaven, can my sons sit at your right and your left hand? Could they, like be on the top of your list in heaven? Isn't that something that a mother would say, right? Say, hey, you know what? I want to stand up for my sons here, right? And she did. And, and, it, and it kind of ticked off the other disciples a little bit. Jesus says, yeah, you don't, you don't even know what you're asking. John is attributed to have written five books in our New Testament. Well, the Gospel of John wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, actually wrote the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the New Testament. Like his brother, he was one of these men in this inner circle, and with Peter became a leader of the church as the, as the church began after the ascension of, of Jesus and, and right after Pentecost. It's also estimated that John lived the longest of all of the disciples. We see the writing of the book of Revelation, typically dated somewhere in the 90s of the first century. So we know that he would have lived about 60 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. John was also very passionate about the ministry of Jesus. There was a time when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem and he sent men ahead of him. He sent disciples ahead of him to go through Samaria. And he sent James and John, and, and James and John noticed that the Samaritans, they weren't accepting Jesus. And these disciples, James and John, they got really upset, and they suggested, let's just bring down fire as a revenge, because they're not accepting Jesus. And Jesus kind of rebuked them and said, no, we're not bringing down fire just because they don't accept me. Like, they were passionate, right? They really were passionate. But see, here's something to remember. James and John were simply fishermen. That's what they did for a living. They worked in the family business. They weren't anyone special in Capernaum. But they were special to Jesus because they were trainable. Because they were able to be molded. James lost his life, and eventually John was exiled to an island, but they were clay in the hands of our Savior. They weren't famous, but they were trainable. The next man in our list is a gentleman by the name of Andrew. Andrew the Apostle is the brother of Simon Peter. And before becoming a follower of Jesus, Andrew was a disciple also of John the Baptist. He was there when Jesus was baptized, and he's not one of the biggest names in our list this morning, but he's certainly one of the men that we hear of more frequently in the New Testament. We see him mentioned 12 times in the New Testament. Andrew leaves us throughout the mentions of him. He lives, leaves us his characteristics, and we get to see that Andrew is eager. This is a huge characteristic of, of, of Andrew. He is so eager to bring other people to Jesus. He started his ministry with people 
in his family. Andrew's first people that he went to, to talk to, were people who, in our lives, we might have the most difficulty ministering to. Would it be fair to say that sometimes we have an easier time talking to strangers about faith than we do our own family, right? Sometimes it's even more difficult within our own household. But that's where Andrew started. He went straight to his family. It's an amazing example of showing how important it is to reach the people in our lives who are the closest to us. And that's where Andrew went first. He went and he told his brother. He went and told his family, I've found the Messiah. This man is the Messiah. Let me introduce you to him. Because to Andrew... The people in his household were those who were so important to him that he wanted to introduce them to Jesus. Sometimes we have a hard time bringing up our faith in our own households. But those are the people who are drastically important to us, those who who we should be reaching out to first, right? That's what Andrew did. He went straight to his family. Philip is the next man that we see in this list who is also a fisherman. He's very instrumental in bringing another man who we're going to talk about in a minute, a gentleman by the name of Nathaniel or Bartholomew. He has kind of two names that we see in the New Testament. And and Nathaniel is another man who's walking with Jesus. Philip, it was Philip who turned to Jesus as Jesus is getting ready to feed a multitude of people in and around Philip's hometown, Jesus asks Philip, he says, where might we get enough food to feed all of these people? The question that Jesus gave Philip, it was actually more of a test of faith than it was a question asking him about where to get food, but that's exactly what Philip did. He started calculating. He's like, okay, so there's like four or 5,000 people and it's going to cost about three or four bucks a person to even get them something small to eat. And he's saying, hey, it's going to cost a lot of money. Philip is very analytical. He's adding up the costs. He's looking at the numbers. He's questioning how this is going to be done. See, Philip has this way of looking at the facts and the figures. And when we look at the facts and the figures, sometimes we struggle to rely on our faith, right? Philip was one who struggled at times to rely on his faith and more so was relying on the numbers. Jesus came back to him and he said, look, I got this. He's like, watch this. Watch what I'm about to do. There was no way in the small town where they were that there was going to be enough food at any of the stores and restaurants to collect to feed all of these people. You're not going to do something like that unless you have the miraculous power of miracles that Jesus is performing in those days. The next man in our list is a gentleman by the name of Bartholomew or Nathaniel. Two names. We're going to refer to him as Nathaniel this morning. And Nathaniel has qualities that are very much relevant in, the, in our current day as well. It was certainly relevant then. It's relevant now. The one thing about Nathaniel is that Nathaniel was very honest. 
He was very straightforward. He, he, would, he initially rejected Jesus as being the Messiah, but then as soon as he noticed, as soon as he met Jesus, he realized right away who he had met. It was from the city of Nazareth that Jesus came from, and Nazareth was not a very popular city. It wasn't a city that anything, you know, probably any king had come from. It was just a city. And when Nathaniel was told that the, the Messiah had been found and he had come from Nazareth, Nathaniel told Philip, he said, hey, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So here's Nathaniel questioning this. We can see that Nathaniel held stereotypes. He did. He held stereotypes about the city. Let's face it, Paris probably has some stereotypes right, out there amongst the other cities that are around us, right? Maybe the Inland Empire has some stereotypes that, that people would look on us a certain way as opposed to Orange County or L.A. County or Ventura County, right? Would it be fair to say that we've got a way of thinking about Orange County, right? So this is kind of the mindset of Nathaniel. And we can see that he had this matter-of-factness to him and this honesty to him and this straightforwardness to him. But he was so honest that Jesus actually recognized his quality. Jesus at one point calls Nathaniel, he calls him a true son of Israel and a very honest man. How would you like to be recognized by Jesus as being somebody who is very honest? Wouldn't that be great for Jesus to say, you are a very honest person? Even his straightforwardness and even his mindset about people from a certain area his flaws are something that Jesus says, you know what, you're still trainable. I want you, and I want you because of your honesty. That's a great trait. Let me ask you this, if you think about it. The, the Lord certainly respects honesty. How important is honesty to disciples who are spreading the message of Jesus? Isn't it very important? What if the disciples were, were people who were going around? What if us as disciples are people who are teaching other people about Jesus, but they can't see our honesty? What if they look at us and they, and they say, you know what, I don't, I, don't trust, I don't trust what you're telling me because of your life. You're not an honest person. You're not. I can't trust what you say. Honesty is so important to spreading the message of Jesus. It is an important quality. Nathaniel was honest when he finally met Jesus for the first time and he acknowledged that Jesus was in fact the Son of God and the King of Israel. It's an important quality to our job, to our discipleship. The next man on the list is a man who also is known by two names. There seems to be a lot of guys with two names. You've got Greek and Hebrew names back then. Um, we'll see in the Bible he's referred to as both the name Levi and we might know him more popularly named as Matthew. This is the first book in the New Testament is written by Matthew. Matthew is somebody who was despised by so many people in his area. And mainly he was despised because of his job, because of what he did. Matthew was a tax collector. 
We talked about this a few weeks ago. It's not as if he was an IRS agent that worked in a cubicle that you could only reach by phone or email. No. He had a booth in town, and he could stop you whenever he wanted to and extort money from you. He could charge you a tax. He could actually almost make up a tax, tax you that tax, take the money from you, and there were no cops or police or Roman guards that would do anything about it. As a matter of fact, it was encouraged. His living came from whatever money that he could get from you above the taxes that he was supposed to collect. That's how he made a living. Tax collectors were put in the same category as murderers, as thieves, as general everyday sinners that people wanted nothing to do with. And still Jesus chose this man to be one of his 12 disciples. See, the Roman government had control over this territory at the time. And what would happen is the government would sell, they would sell out the opportunity for people to collect the taxes. It would be like a business. And what would happen is your business would have to collect a certain amount of money from the people in the district that you were working in. And anything above that that you collected was yours to keep. So Matthew either owned one of these businesses or he worked for somebody who did. See, Matthew was Jewish, though, and he was collecting taxes from the Jews who lived in the area. So if you can imagine, they didn't like him very much. They honestly would have looked down on him a little bit more than they would have looked down on the Romans. They expected the Romans to do this because that's what the Romans did when they came in they conquered a territory. But to have one of their own people that was treating them like this, yeah, he wasn't looked upon very well from the other Jews in Galilee at the time. Not at all. He had the authority to simply take money from people and the Roman guards and the, the cops, they wouldn't do anything about it. But Jesus still saw something in Matthew that went beyond what he did for a living. He saw something in Matthew so much so that Jesus walks up to his tax collector's booth and he says, follow me. And Matthew drops everything, a very profitable business, drops everything to follow Jesus. You know what one of the first things that Matthew does when he starts following Jesus? Matthew decides he's going to throw a party. He's going to throw a banquet. And he's going to invite all of his tax collector friends over to meet Jesus. And so here's this party, this event, this banquet full of people who general public can't stand. They don't want to be around them. As soon as Matthew finds the Messiah, finds Jesus, he wants to tell all of his friends. That's the first thing that he does. He wants to tell people. See, to Matthew, Christianity was not for people who think that they're already good. It's for people who know that they've failed and want help. That's what, Jesus, that's what Matthew wanted. He knew he had failed. He needed help. Matthew wasn't there yet. He wasn't somebody who had... Who had all of the answers, who was already good, he needed help. To Matthew, he first went out to, to gather all of the other people, all of his contemporaries, all of his co-workers who were sinners also. He went and found them to bring them to Jesus. Because immediately he knew that was his job. 
And that's what he did. The next one of our 12 is a gentleman by the name of Thomas. And his Greek name would be Didymus, which means twin. We're often, we often refer to him as Thomas the twin. At one point in the ministry of Jesus, Thomas suggested that the disciples go with Jesus to Bethany, to Bethany even if it meant their death. And, and Thomas asked Jesus where he was going. At the time, he wasn't quite sure exactly where it was that Jesus was going. And Jesus, he said, he told Thomas that he's going to prepare a place for his followers. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how do we know how to get there? And Jesus answered him in John 14, 6. He answered him with the exclusive claim of Christianity. He said this to Thomas. He says, I am the way. You're looking for the way? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody gets to the Father except what? Except through me. It's exactly what he told Thomas. Thomas also has a nickname that I would assume that if he were here today or if he knew that we called him this, he probably wouldn't like too much. <laughs> probably wouldn't. Thomas probably wouldn't like the fact that we refer to him as Doubting Thomas. The first time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after the resurrection, Thomas wasn't there. All of the other disciples were there, but Thomas wasn't. And when the other disciples told Thomas, we have seen Jesus, Thomas said, I don't believe you. He says, I don't believe you and I won't believe you. Not until I see him, not until I see the holes in his hands and I'm able to put my fingers in those holes. Until then, I won't believe. Eight days later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples, and Thomas was there. And Jesus singles him out and says, Thomas, come here. Come here. I want you to feel this. He says, I want you to realize this is what you wanted. You wanted proof. I want you to touch my hands. I want you to see this. And Thomas responded immediately. He says, my Lord and my God. See, Thomas knows right away. But before Thomas knew, Thomas doubted. See, even when Christians experience serious doubts, Jesus still has a way to come to us and show us that He is who He says He is. Amen? Our doubts are a very, very small issue for Jesus. They could be a huge problem for us. But he has a way of coming to us and saying, hey, you remember the story of Thomas? Remember that? How I had to show him the holes in my hands for him to believe? I think in a way Jesus would say, hey, why do I have to do this again? But I will. Look, it's me. I'm here. I'm here. Jesus has a way of doing that. But He wants that story, He wants that doubting story with Thomas to be an example to us. So that we can take that story and we can say, you know what, even in my time of doubt, Jesus is still there. He proved Himself to Thomas. He did that for a reason. That story was recorded for a reason. It was recorded so that we would know. 
The next man is a gentleman we refer to as James, the son of Alphaeus. And I'm going to group two guys in here. It's another gentleman by the name of Thaddeus. So far, the first eight disciples that we've seen in our profile, we've been able to study and learn a little bit about them. But these next two, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, there's actually very little recorded about them. There's just a small amount recorded about James, but there's almost nothing recorded about Thaddeus. The only place that we see James, the son of Alphaeus, mentioned in the Bible is actually in the scripture that lists him as one of the apostles. But I don't want you to think that he's not important simply because we don't know anything about him. Thaddeus, we hardly have any recording of his life at all or of his ministry, of either of these two men. But I want you to remember this, that even though we don't know anything about them, they were still handpicked by Jesus. They were handpicked because they were trainable. Just because we don't know anything about them doesn't mean that they weren't drastically important to the kingdom. I would honestly say, and I think that one of the most important lessons in the life of the disciples is in the recording of the ministry of these men, that two people that we almost know nothing about, And I think this is so important to see that it's actually a point in your notes this morning. Point number three, some of the most amazing ministers of the gospel are known for nothing other than Jesus. Some of the most amazing ministers of the gospel are known for nothing other than Jesus. That's the only reason that Thaddeus is listed. It's the only reason that James, the son of Alphaeus, is mentioned in the Bible is his association with Jesus. We know that he would have gone on like the other disciples to tell other people that he would have trained with Jesus for a time satisfactory enough to Christ to where he knew that his message is in the right hands now. He was a minister of the gospel. But the only thing we know about him is Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That the only thing we know about him is Jesus. I want you to think about your discipleship. Through your life, what of those that are learning from you, the only thing they know about you is Jesus. What greater honor, right? What greater honor that the only thing we know about these men is our Savior. That's it. Our 11th disciple in this list is a gentleman by the name of Simon, who's also referred to as Simon the Zealot. And again, we don't know a whole lot of information about Simon the Zealot, but Simon the Zealot, as its name would imply, does lead us to some information that is very important about him. He was also referred to as Simon the Canaanite, and the the word Canaanite in this translation refers to the word zealot. It tells us that he was a member of an ancient Jewish sect that that resisted the occupation of the Romans in their territory. At this time in Israel's history, Rome was in control of this territory, and as you could imagine, there were Jews that lived in the area that would have been fanatics about the fact that they wanted the Romans out. They wanted, they wanted to overthrow the government that was 
that had taken over their land. I want you to think about your friends on Facebook, okay? And I want you to think about that one friend that you have that everything they post is political. Everything they post is political, right? Has something to do with this administration or that administration. Everything that Simon the Zealot would have been talking about would have been having to do with overthrowing the Roman government. That was his thing. He was on the extreme edge of those in this, this Palestinian territory or, or in Galilee that wanted to overthrow the Roman government. That would have been all he would have talked about. You can almost imagine the other disciples. Every time Simon starts talking, they start rolling his eyes. There he goes, wanting to overthrow the government again. I mean, that was Simon. That's what, what his passion was. But even though that his passion was overthrowing the Roman government, he would have been on this extreme edge of politics in his time, Jesus still saw something in him. He was still trainable. He was still hand-picked. He still had quirks, just like you and I. But he was still useful to the kingdom. He was absolutely useful to the kingdom. The twelfth and the final man in our profile this morning is a gentleman who is for the most part, known by one act that really overshadows his entire life. It's a gentleman by the name of Judas Iscariot. And we don't know a whole lot of the details of the life of Judas, but we all know his final story that really is, is what he is known for. Judas is the man who betrayed Jesus. He turned him over to the Roman authorities who eventually led Jesus to the cross and to his crucifixion. It was at a Passover supper that Jesus announced that he was going to be betrayed. He, he actually said he was going to be betrayed by one of his friends. He used the term friends, really referring to the fact and telling us that Judas was a friend of Jesus. He was somebody who, who Jesus loved, somebody who Jesus trusted the Bible doesn't tell us why Judas betrayed him. Some thought that maybe it was for money. Maybe Judas got a lot of money out of it. Judas really didn't get a lot of money. One thing we do know about Judas is that he was familiar with money. He was the treasurer of the disciples. If you think about it, you've got 12 men in Jesus who are wandering around the countryside for a few years. It takes money to, to manage this group of guys when they go somewhere. They need food to eat and, and they need to buy supplies. It was Judas, the one that, that took care of, of the finance of the, of the team as they traveled. He kind of knew something about money. If we think about it, he probably has access to money if he wants to just take money and leave and just steal the money from, from Jesus and the disciples. He was given 30 pieces of silver, which really isn't a lot of money to betray Jesus. So it's hard to say that he betrayed Jesus for the money, but he did betray Jesus. And at the time, G Judas felt such guilt that like, what have I done? 
what have I done? He goes back to the priests to give them their money back. And they said, no, we got our guy. We don't want anything to do with this money. He throws it all over the floor. And the, and the guilt of Judas is so extreme that Judas will eventually take his own life. It's the biggest story that we know about Judas Iscariot. But as we wrap up our profile of the 12 disciples, I want you to remember something very important about Judas. We look at him very often as a villain in the Bible, and understandably so. But before Judas betrayed Jesus, Jesus picked Judas. Jesus hand-picked Judas. Judas was trainable. Judas followed Jesus. Judas learned from Jesus. In the time that Judas was walking with Jesus, we can see, we, and, and, and we can imagine that Judas would have been helping in the ministry. He would have been one that would have set up chairs for church when Jesus would come to preach to people. That would, that would help people who would come for healing. Judas was handpicked. Yes, he betrayed Christ. But Jesus loved Judas. And he handpicked him. He saw promise in Judas. Or else our Lord wouldn't have picked him. Wouldn't have said, I want you to come into the inner circle. I want you to become one of these men that's going to go out and teach others about me. See, Jesus sees promise in you, or else he wouldn't have handpicked you. He sees promise in all of us, or else he wouldn't have handpicked all of us. You're here this morning because our Lord sees amazing promise in you. He sees amazing potential in you. He knows that you are moldable. He knows that you're trainable. You're somebody that He could teach so that you could go out and teach others. That's the job. That's the job that we sign up for when we come to Christ. He didn't pick any of these men by accident, and He doesn't pick you by accident. We are all here on purpose. This morning I wonder which one of these 12 disciples that you might connect with. I know it's not very often that we look at a profile of 12 men in one sermon. A lot of times maybe we break that down into 12 different sermons, but we just took a little peek at at each of the 12 this morning. But I bet you we can all connect with at least one of them. Maybe we can connect with, with more than one of the disciples. Maybe it's Matthew that we connect with, who had a job that had him looked down upon. And maybe we can look back at our past and say, you know what, I've had jobs that I wasn't proud of in the past. Maybe they were jobs that I really didn't want to tell anyone about. But you know what, Jesus still picked you. Maybe it, was, maybe it was somebody like Andrew that, that when you met Jesus, you were so passionate about telling people in your family that you wanted your mom and your dad and your brothers and your sisters and your aunts and uncles to know who it was that you found. Maybe there's qualities of the disciples that we can relate to. Maybe there's some disciples that we can't really relate to. But if there's... If there's a quality that that I want you to be able to understand this morning is that these men 
Out of all of the people on earth who Jesus could have called to follow him, it was these 12 men. And Jesus didn't call them because of who they were. He called them because of who they weren't. They weren't scholars. They weren't preachers. He didn't call them because they had degrees. He didn't call them because they were massively influential. He called them because they were trainable. Because they were moldable. Because they could learn and they would learn. They weren't royalty. They weren't celebrities. They weren't widely known. But they were people who would learn from Jesus. Who were willing to learn from Jesus. See, by the time that Jesus was done teaching them, and by the time he's ready to send them out into this world, all 12 of these men who came from different lifestyles, who came from different areas and walks, all had one thing in common. They were madly in love with Jesus Christ and had a deep desire to teach other people about his grace. That's what they did. It took a couple of years. They said, Jesus told them, you're about to go out on your own. I'm not going to be here. And I need you to take this message to other people. I need you to tell them. Jesus gave them a commission. We call it the Great Commission to go and tell others. But they spent a couple of years in training before they went, right? These men are exactly like you and me. Jesus hired people to do the most important job in history, and that is to spread the good news of the gospel. And do you know who else he hired to do that job? All of us. He hired all of us to do that same job. He hired you, not because of who you are, but because of who you aren't. He hires you because you're not a celebrity. He hires you because... You don't come with preconceived notions. But most importantly, he hires you because you're trainable, right? Because you're here to listen and to learn. And he knows that there's somebody in your life that you could reach with the gospel. He knows that you've got people in your path that will listen to you and that you can talk to. And he hires you because you have the qualities of a disciple. Somebody who is willing to learn and somebody who is willing to go. See, at one point, the term disciple changes into another word called an apostle. See, a disciple is one who learns. An apostle is one who goes. When the church started... They're not referred to as the 12 disciples anymore. They're referred to as the 12 apostles. They were trained and they learned as disciples. And then they went out to teach others as apostles. But before we go out to teach others, we need to be taught. We need to be molded, right? 
And Jesus wants to do that. This is the final point in your notes this morning before we close. Point number four in your notes. Jesus hired you because he needs a disciple who will tell others about our Lord. He needs a disciple who is willing to go. Who is willing to learn and to become an apostle. He needs disciples. Disciples are learners. And that's our job is to learn, amen? With full intention of going. Now, it might be going to another town. It might be going somewhere else to start another church. It might be going from this ministry in Sunday morning church. It might be going to kids' ministry to go and help the kids once a month, right? It might be going from here to start helping our youth ministry, right? When that starts up. It might be going from here to start working with a women's group. But wherever it is, it's different than learning and training. Training eventually becomes going, right? All of the disciples are training for the intention of going. We're all hired. Because you know why? Here's something I want you to realize. And here's something that I want you to celebrate as, as we leave this morning. You are hired because you're the best person for the job. You are absolutely the best person for the job. You are the best disciple that is hired today to do the job that Christ has in front of you. Isn't that amazing to think of? Of all the jobs that you've had, you could have been the one that was picked to do the job because they needed somebody to do the job. Jesus didn't pick you to do the job just because he needed somebody to do it. He picked you because you are the best person for the job. The best person for the job. And you know what he picked you with? He picked you even though you come with baggage. Even though you come with your hurts and your insecurities and your doubt, He picked you, even with all of that. Because He knows He has the strength. You need strength? He has it. We just asked for it. He has it for us, right? Next week, as disciples, we are going to start learning from Jesus. As He starts teaching His disciples... As his disciples, we're going to start listening and learning to what it is that Jesus has in store for us. Because we're all disciples, giving, given the responsibility to learn from our leader and be trained to go out and bring others to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.